All right, guys, good morning. My name's Drew, and it's my privilege to be able to bring you the word this morning. One of the things that's been true of Salt City Church from the beginning is that we have had a desire for our church to be a multi-generational church. And what we mean by that is we want people of all ages coming to our church. Something we say often here is that we need each other. And I think most of the time when people think of needing each other, they immediately think of community or friendship. But one of the ways that we're going to see in this text that we need each other is we don't just need friends within the church, we need examples to imitate. Now, I think to imitate someone else is one of the most natural things to all of us in life. I see this every single day with my kids. Just one example of that is one of my parenting styles with having five kids is to turn our house into a musical. So I'm constantly singing things to my kids. Like if they get in trouble, this drives them absolutely nuts. But I sing this little song that I made up that goes, if you have a disagreement, you need to work it out. And I've sung it so many times to them that they just absolutely hate it, which is kind of part of the point. But what I've noticed is now they've picked up this habit from me. And so they're constantly singing things to each other. So I'd be like, okay, guys, it's time to get in the van. And they'll be like, I don't want to get in the van. And so it's kind of like coming back to bite me a little bit. But they're constantly imitating things that I'm doing that are good or that are bad. And we need people in our lives. If we're going to grow in Christ-like character, we need people to imitate. And that's because there's this huge banner that hangs over the Bible, this huge calling on our lives as Christians to become like Jesus, to imitate Jesus in all that we do. And if we're going to imitate Jesus, that's a little bit abstract to us. We're going to need examples that are a little bit closer at hand that we can watch and see how they live their lives. So we're going to see in this text in Philippians chapter 3, three ways that we can grow in imitating Jesus. The first one is to keep your eyes on the godly. Look at with me at Philippians 3, verse 17. The Apostle Paul writes this, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, just before this, in Philippians 3, verse 14, Paul sort of states his life mission. And he says this, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. What's Paul saying? I've made it my life ambition to become more and more like Jesus. So when he says, join in imitating me, he's saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But we're at this point, once again, we're like, okay, imitate Jesus. Jesus lived on the earth in bodily form 2,000 years ago. Paul also lived on the earth 2,000 years ago. And we can read about their example in the Bible but we can't see their example in daily life. So Paul drops us this nugget of grace right in this passage. 
And he says, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. To the Philippian church, what that meant is although Paul is in prison in Rome, he has left disciples in Philippi who have followed his example. So you've got this young church, this multi-generational church, and you've got people who are brand new Christians, and you've got Christians who have, people who have been Christians for a little while. And Paul is saying, here's where I want everybody's eyes in the church to be. On those who are following my example. Here's where our eyes need to be as a church. They need to be on those who are in our midst following the example that we have in Christ and following the example that we have in the Apostle Paul. We need to lift our eyes onto people that are a step or two ahead of us in walking like Jesus. And I think here's a couple things to keep on the lookout for. Look for people that are filled with an ambition to become more like Jesus. That is not just talk, but is part of their daily walk and rhythm. People who are pressing forward to become like Jesus in all that they do. And then look at that example, that grit and determination that those people have, meet up with them, ask them, how did you get to a point where you were walking this way? I know that that doesn't happen overnight. Would you please teach me what that looks like in your life? Let me give you an example of this from my own life, just from a couple weeks ago. So I was experiencing some discouragement as a husband and as a dad. And so I called up one of the elders of our church, Terry Langlin, and I said, Terry, would you meet up with me for lunch? I'd love to just pick your brain on a few things, ask you a few questions so that I can learn from your example. He said, sure. So we sat down. There was something I was really struck by that he said in about an hour and a half long conversation that I had with him. I just said, what has fueled your ability to run a small business, to be a great husband, and to be a great example as a dad throughout your life. And he sort of paused and he said, Drew, you know, when I was 29 years old, I kind of bumped into this habit of spending the first part of each day with Jesus with the express goal of that time not being knowledge acquisition, just Bible knowledge, but being to stand in awe of Jesus. And he said, I've stumbled around with that, but I feel like in my 60s, now I'm in this sweet spot where I'm leaving each day worshiping Jesus, and that is carrying through my day moment by moment. Do you know what's happened for me since that conversation? I have been so encouraged that it is possible to walk with Jesus and have a passion for him for the rest of my life. And do you know what? I don't think 
that I would have gotten to that place with just the example of Jesus and just the example of the Apostle Paul or just a bunch of figures from history. I needed to sit across the table at Chipotle from Terry Langelin in Minnetonka and have that conversation with him because I needed that flesh and blood example. I need somebody to look me in the eyes and say, at this time and in this place, it is possible to have your heart filled with passion for Jesus because the same spirit that empowered Jesus Christ and the, empowered the Apostle Paul is empowering Tang, Terry Langlin and is living in me. And so it is possible to follow Jesus for a lifetime, but it is not possible if we try to go it alone. And so here's my encouragement to those of you who are older in our church. Guys, we need you. We need your example. And you look back at your life and you're looking back with regret, and you're saying, look, I don't know that I have that much to offer. We can even learn from your failures. And I know in talking to some of you, you're actually insecure about meeting with younger people in our church. And I'm saying, please, pursue relationships with us so that we can learn from you and to be encouraged by you, okay? Here's my encouragement for those of you who are younger in our church. Pursue the older people in our church. Pursue the people that are more mature than you. Maybe it's a, a friendship where you are admiring something about someone else and you are wondering how they are walking with Jesus so faithfully in that area. Let's take steps of faith toward each other, have some humility, and ask the other person how they've done it so that we can follow in their example. This is the genius of God's plan that he hasn't just left us examples in this book, but he's left us examples in this room. We have an incredible opportunity in front of us. So let's keep our eyes on the godly. The second thing that Paul reminds us of in this calling that we have to imitate Jesus is to also consider the negative examples. He tells us to consider those who turn away from the path of following Jesus and imitating him. Look at their way of life. Because some of us are hard-headed and we have a hard time learning from positive examples, and so we need to know what it looks like to drive your car into the ditch. So he gives us that too. All right, look at verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3. He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Okay, so he's imploring this church Join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on the godly people. Why? That word for, it means because. Because many people who used to be faithful followers of Jesus now walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. People who have tried to go it alone. People who have not listened to my encouragement in the past. 
They now walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And Paul does not say this with any arrogance. You can almost see the tears on the pages of your Bible. Paul has names in mind. Friends. Some of you have friends that immediately come to mind. Co-workers, parents, people that you once looked to as godly examples who have walked away from Jesus. And he uses this interesting phrase to describe them. He says that they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. That's a very interesting thing to be an enemy of the cross of Christ. That would have really stuck out to a Roman audience. The reason that would have stuck out to them is because the cross was like the electric chair of the day. It was a form of torture. The person on the cross had lost. There's no reason to be the enemy of somebody who's on the cross. They're done. They're finished. To be an enemy of the cross of Christ is to be an enemy of somebody who is in the most vulnerable position possible. Why would somebody become an enemy of the cross of Christ? Paul spells it out for us by showing us what this lifestyle of walking as an enemy of the cross of Christ looks like. He says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So let's take each of the actions kind of one at a time. Their God is their belly. Now I'm sure that gluttony is in Paul's mind. People who just are consuming tons of food and drink and are overweight as a result. He's thinking of that, but he's using this idea of gluttony to show us a way of living that is the opposite of the way of Jesus. It is this way of living that is so common to our culture. It's like the air that we breathe. It's the way that we consider in our culture to be the right way to live. It's this idea of looking inside of yourself at your desires, whether that's for food, or that's for sex, or that's for money, or that's for power. And whatever you feel, that is what is real. And because it's real for you, that is what you should do. That is in essence, to become an enemy of the cross of Christ. Because what we see on the cross is that Jesus did the opposite of that. He did not look inside of himself and see what he desired and do that. Instead, he looked inside of himself, saw that he did not desire to go to the cross, took that desire to God. God said, no, this is the mission of your life. He put aside his desire and he listened to the word of God instead of his desires. And as a result, he purchased our salvation. Our God is not our belly. Our God is our God. And he asks us to do things often that are in opposition to what we desire. The second thing he says 
is that they glory in their shame. So for Christians, our conscience has been awakened by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there are many things that we've done in our past that we are ashamed of. Everything that the world is now doing, we have done. We do not look down on the world with pride. We look out at the world with compassion. And so when our co-workers brag about their drinking escapades or their promiscuity, or they talk about the ways that they're just going to blow their money on whatever they want, or they talk about climbing the corporate ladder and looking for power, we don't look at them and say, I can't believe you would do that. Instead, our hearts ache like Paul's did, and, and we remember what it used to be like with tears. And, and we remember when we used to brag about the same things that we did. You see, Jesus Christ changes your boasting. Instead of boasting in your sin and in your opposition to him, you boast in the cross, in what Jesus has done for you. And you are not proud of your sin. You don't glory in your shame. You confess your sin to other people. And you ask God to forgive you. We repent. The third thing that Paul mentions here is that their minds are set on earthly things. See, your mind drives your life. What your heart loves, your mind focuses on, and what your mind focuses on drives your life. And if you are a Christian, your desires have been changed so that you no longer want the kingdom of this world in the same way that you did before because you have a greater desire for God's kingdom to come on this earth as it is in heaven. But as a worldly person who is in opposition to the cross of Christ, your mind is just set on this earth. And your mantra is, I'm going to get as much as I can out of this life because I believe if I have this and I have that and I have that, that it will satisfy me. Here's the interesting thing. The Bible teaches us to pursue satisfaction in the exact opposite way that we would naturally think that we would find it. It is so counterintuitive. Listen to Jesus in John chapter 12, verses 24 through 25. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. See, the world says, if you say yes to yourself and no to God enough times, you will find satisfaction. The Bible says the exact opposite. If you say no to yourself, and say yes to God enough times, you will find true life. 
Here's what I know all of us know by this point in our lives. We have tasted trying to find satisfaction by saying yes to ourselves and being deeply disappointed enough times that there's a little bit of curiosity welling up within us. And we wonder if the whole trajectory of our lives, the whole way that we've been pursuing satisfaction has been wrong. What if what you need is not more of yourself but more of Jesus. You know, this gets incredibly practical in all of our lives. So I was actually working on my sermon this week, and I was at this point in the sermon. So feeling pretty good about it. I was kind of in a rhythm. I was, I was rolling, you know, and I'm writing things down. And as I'm writing things down, I was working from home, and one of my kids came down. I'm kind of like, hey, I'm, I'm working, I'm working. Can you, you know, get your juice yourself? And, you know... <laughs> Getting, getting in the rhythm. And then another one came down, and I'm getting more frustrated because I'm working on a sermon trying to teach people how to die to themselves, right? I'm like, come on. And then another one comes down, and then another one comes down. Then my wife had gone to a neighbor's house, and she was digging a plant out of the ground. And it turned out this was a, quite a large plant. And so she FaceTimed me as I'm working on my sermon to teach other people how to die to themselves, and I'm in a rhythm, and she FaceTimes me and asks me if I can drop everything that I'm doing and come help her dig out this bush that was more like a tree. <laughs> and so don't these people understand how important what I'm doing is right now? And then it just dawns on me in the moment, like, Jesus is like, like, die to yourself like this, like this, like drop your sermon and go dig out the tree bush thing. Like, oh, and, and I, I just was, was driving over there with a shovel in the trunk, just laughing at myself at how ridiculous I can be, that I can know this is true, that I can believe this is true, that I can be excited to preach it to other people. But I can be so blind to how my own desires, my own wants, and my own feelings drive my actions instead of self-sacrifice in the example of Jesus for those around me. Guys, what do you want in your life? What is your greatest desire? Is it self-fulfillment by looking within yourself and living out what you see inside as real, or is it to imitate Jesus? Is it to follow him, his example? Are you willing, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, to give up your own desires for the greater ambition of following Jesus. Here's what Jesus says. You'll never regret it. That is where life is found. Okay, how can we possibly be fueled up to do this for the next 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years of our life?
How can we live as friends of the cross of Christ and not as enemies of the cross of Christ? Paul says that our fuel is to remember your hope. See, Christianity is not outward conformity to a set of rules. It is an inward change that is birthed by a living hope in Jesus. Verses 20 and 21, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. How do we say no to our own desires? How do we say yes to Jesus on a consistent basis? We believe that this place is not our home. We believe that our citizenship is in heaven. We believe that the reason we can't get satisfied by the things of the world is because we weren't made for this world. We were made for heaven. We can't possibly be satisfied by earthly things because we were made for heavenly things. And so here's what we're doing in the midst of this broken, messed up world where we're trying to imitate Jesus, where we're seeking to say no to our own desires, every day we are waiting. We're waiting for our Savior. Because here's true biblical Christianity. It is not total victory over your sin. That is a lie. You will be struggling with sin to your last breath. You will be fighting those old desires until the day that you die. And sometimes you're going to fail. Which is why even though we have a Savior, Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners and he sent his Spirit into us, we still need saving. Because God's plan is not to fully and completely rid of us of sin and sickness in this life. His plan is to do it when he comes back again. So yes, we fight. Yes, we seek to follow in other people's example. But we also just have to wait. In this word that Paul uses for wait, the word await, in verse 20, it means assiduously, that's showing great care or attention, and patiently waiting for. So it's careful and purposeful waiting. I think that's what Terry was talking about in my conversation with him. I think we wake up each day and we say, Jesus, I want to follow you. But I don't know if I can do it for another day. And I need your help. 
Because this world is so broken and there are so many needs and I am so broken and I have so many needs that I, not, I don't just need the strength for you to get me through today. I need a hope that extends beyond this life. And Paul spells out what that hope is. Here's our hope, Christian. Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. I think when we think about the transformation of our bodies as Christians, we think about two things. We think about our health. We think, man, especially as we start to get older, my body is going to fall apart. And so you can take like the Botox and work out seven days a week approach to try to make yourself look a certain way and try to make your body perform a certain way for as long as you possibly can. But at some point, we all know our bodies are going to break down and they are going to die and we can't do anything about it. No matter how clean we eat or how much we do, we can't transform our lowly bodies. And some of us are going to die of cancer when we're in our 30s and we can't do anything about it. This world is cursed. We're toast. We can't change that. The second thing that we really want to change is that we've come to know Jesus. We're seeking after him. We're reading his word, but it feels like we're stumbling around in the dark a lot of the time because we're trying to overcome sin patterns in our lives. We're trying to stop being so angry. We're trying to be pure. We're trying to stop this addiction or this habit, and it keeps coming back, and it's like we're just living the same circle over and over again, and we're frustrated, and we're trying, and we want something to change. It almost seems like I'm talking about personal experience, doesn't it? And it's like we just want it to be over, and we, at the bottom of it, as much as we're trying to follow other people's examples, and we're trying to say no to our own desires, as much as we're doing that, we can't transform this lowly body. And even the best Christians that we know who have been following Jesus for the longest time, as we start to get to know them, what's really alarming is they're just like us. They're still struggling with sin. Their bodies are definitely breaking down. And here's what Paul says our hope is. Jesus has the power to subject all things, including your body, to himself. So here's our hope. Our hope is not self-transformation through self-effort. It's not perfectionism in this life. Even with the help of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, you ain't going to be perfect. It's that Jesus is coming back, and in the twinkling of an eye, you won't even want to sin anymore. Your body 
will be absolutely rock-solid, perfect, and indestructible, and beautiful. You'll never have body image issues again in an instant. That's our hope. And so we don't have to chase after the things of the world because we don't need them. We don't have to have guys or girls telling us that we're wonderful and that we're beautiful and meeting all of our needs and getting into sexual promiscuity. And we don't need to drink to forget about our problems because the reason that you do those things is because you don't have hope. We have hope. Jesus is his name. Guys, I don't know if you've ever experienced real health problems before, but many of you know I had a health scare a couple years ago, and I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. And so for six months, every joint in my body was inflamed and hurt like absolute crazy. I couldn't open a Ziploc bag. My wife had to do it for me. And I remember bouncing from doctor to doctor to doctor, trying to figure out how to get my health back on track. And I remember I finally got involved with a support group with a bunch of women in their 60s, and they all told me about the best doctor in town. <laughs> I can tell you more about that later. But they were great. And uh, anyway, I, I met with this doctor, and I was trying the diet stuff, and I was trying another kind of medication, but I had read some stuff about the medication that I'm now on, and I knew that there could be some dangerous side effects. And I remember meeting with her, and she said, listen, you can either not take the medication and end up crippled for the rest of your life, or you can take the medication, you'll be playing golf in two months. I was like, I'm going to take option B. All right, but she was really straightforward with me. And so I started taking the medicine, and I remember as my joints started to loosen up, the hope growing. I listened to what she said, and as a result, the hope was growing. Guys, when we listen to what Jesus says, he's the good physician. We do what he says. We see that his word is true, and our hope grows. So here's what Paul says to us. To close out this section, as the overall exhortation to us. He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord. Here's my encouragement to you guys. Those of you who have come to the end of yourselves, those of you who are tired and weary, you don't think you can take another step. Those of you who are tempted to sin and run away from Jesus. And to be honest, the things of the world look a whole lot more desirable to you right now than the things of God. Here's my encouragement to you. Hold on. Stand firm. Because one day, we will stand on this earth together and we will see Jesus come back. And he will make everything right again. We can't make everything right again. He will make everything right again. That's our hope. Let's pray. Jesus, 
thank you that you are not just our example, but you are our hope. That we can teach each other how to pray or read the Bible or love our families, but none of us can transform these lowly bodies to become like your glorious body. Jesus, thank you that you are not just all loving, but you are also all powerful because when we see that combination, our hearts that are weary swell with hope. And it gives us courage to take a next step. God, I pray for that person in the room who just came in and they're just, they're done. Just at the end of themselves. God, would you speak hope? Would you give them courage to keep on going? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.